Thank you, Devin. So Trisha and I would like to also welcome everybody who's watching uh, today. And then also, um, as Devin said, this is being recorded. So some of you may be watching this on a future day. So we welcome you also. Uh, the topic today is ESG and trust, fiduciary considerations. Um, my name is Kelly Garino. I'm a vice president and trust counsel at Fiduciary Trust Company. Uh, Trisha and I are colleagues, so she's going to introduce herself and tell you a little bit about what our role is, and then we'll move over to the topic for today. Hi, I'm Trisha Smock. I'm also trust counsel at Fiduciary Trust Company. Um, and Kelly and I are estate planning lawyers by training, and we're in private practice for many years before coming in-house at Fiduciary. Um, Fiduciary is a, a wealth manager with a special emphasis on trusts. So we maintain a, um, a team of estate planning lawyers that uh, guide the company through issues presented when um, the Fiduciary is acting as trustee or as personal representative of a decedent's estate. Um, and this is uh, a very timely topic. I, um, you know, uh, when we're thinking about investing and overlaying investing in a trust scenario, um, ESG is one of the uh, hottest topics of recent months and years. So we're really looking forward to getting into the nuts and bolts of what's at stake. And we'll move on to the next slide. And that shows us an overview of, of how we're going to address this topic today. So as Trisha said, um, well, actually, let me just add to kind of that intro that that Trisha gave. It, it's important to remember that the ESG and, uh, all right, let me start that over. It's important. The topic is ESG and trusts, and it's not ESG and individuals. So it's important to remember that all of what we're talking about today uh, relates to serving as trustee or when you're managing money for someone else. Uh, if a client of yours or you yourself have your own assets and want to integrate ESG factors, uh, the considerations we're talking about today aren't at play. Um, so it's it's in that fiduciary context that all of this, this really matters and that, that's what we're talking about. So with that, uh, what we're doing today is first taking a look at some history. So we'll look at the history of just investment standards for fiduciaries, also responsible investing kind of what that lingo has been over the, the past decades. Then we'll shift to Trisha will be talking about some more current events. So it, as she said, it's everywhere in the news. We'll look at international also in the US, the Marissa considerations, state legislation that has um, been in place for ESG. And then we'll shift back to kind of our, you know, the um, what we all are familiar with, which is trust common law and fiduciary duties. Uh, and then looking at some practical considerations for that. So starting right in then on some history, the for fiduciary investment standards, kind of where we look to this and where we start is, is way back in 1830, the Harvard College versus Amory and the prudent man rule. Uh, we like this case, not just because we can put up pictures like this, but um, it's you know local to Massachusetts, it um, the case concerned an individual who left a will where he left thirty five thousand dollars personal property to um, and some personal property to his wife, but also fifty thousand dollars in trust named two trustees had you know directed them to invest this these assets and pay his wife the income, and then the remainder beneficiaries were Harvard College and Mass General Hospital. Uh, 
one of the trustees died, the remaining trustee resigned. And at the time, you know, many years later, at the time he resigned, Harvard College sued him saying he lost um, money on the investments and shouldn't have. So the case was kind of looking at what standard applies to a trustee when they're investing trust for someone else. But the main uh, message from this case, um, or the main takeaway is that each investment stands on its own. That was the standard then. Uh, and kind of the, the earliest um, iteration of, of investment standards, that's where we started with. This is at the same time as statutory lists. And what those were actual statutes that listed what was okay for a trustee to invest in. So dictating, you know, very specific um, types of assets. And if an asset was not on that list or in the statute in the state where the trustee was operating, then the, the trustee couldn't purchase that asset or have it as part of the trust. Um, so very limited, both prudent man rule and the statutory list. Shifting forward uh, quite a few decades, we came to the modern portfolio theory in the early 50s. And this was a big shift towards um, looking at the a portfolio as a whole. So instead of each investment standing on its own with the prudent man rule, looking at the entire portfolio, you aren't just looking at each asset individually. So it spreads risk across the portfolio and uh, emphasis on diversification. The arrow kind of goes from there all the way across the, the slide because that theme carries through to our more to our more recent rules and the updates of, of investment standards. So moving along that arrow, um, we have, I had my face right in front of this. Uh, we have the uh, restatement third of trust gave us the prudent investor rule. And then the Uniform Prudent Investor Act a few years later uh, uh, put that same rule in statute. In Massachusetts, uh, we'll be looking at it more closely later. In Massachusetts, it's um, Chapter 203C and was enacted in 1998. We'll also be talking some about ERISA, and this came in 1974, so um, before that time. So let's talk just a little bit more about the modern portfolio theory, again, because it kind of carries through um, all of the standards we have today. And some of this we've already talked about. Uh, key point is diversification over different asset classes. So you're looking at different industries, sectors within those industries, and making sure you're not concentrated just in one area. Um, so in, in looking at investments in each class. The goal with this is... Um, kind of two part. One is lowering your overall investment risk. So again, if you're in, in just one asset, it will have ups and downs. And so your risk is commensurate with just having uh, one motion of, of that asset, whether it is up or down. Uh, and to also increase the expected overall return. So you're both managing risk and increasing your return. Uh, not only different uh, so you want different classes, but you, it's um, they're advantageous if they don't correlate to each other. So you want um, some assets that um, when they're when the market is um, making uh, the value of those assets increase, you might have other uh, classes or categories where there's a decrease, but they will offset each other. Again, a key part of modern portfolio theory is that no one investment has to meet a certain set of criteria. So unlike the statutory list where it's either in or out, um, it's, it's in connection with the entire portfolio. There's also 
some indifference to the type of return. So thinking back to the prudent man rule in Harvard College, it was all about income and what was being produced as income. For a modern portfolio theory, you're looking at um, just kind of all type of return, whether it's dividends, interest, capital gain, realized and unrealized. Um, so it's somewhat indifferent to taxes. And then the final point here is just, um, again, what we've been saying, optimizing the total investment returns while minimizing risk instead of just focusing on, on cash returns. Um, some, even though Tricia went to the next slide, some critique of the modern portfolio theory that we're not going to talk about too much, but it does come into play when thinking about ESG factors and, and investing that is um, that this focuses on short-term returns, um, that there's quarterly results, quarterly reporting, and then some say you should be looking at longer term um, instead. So now we can go to the next slide and we'll shift from, uh, so history of, we have history of um, investment standards and how that's um, changed over time. And now let's look at the other side of this, which is a socially responsible investing. Uh, socially responsible investing is kind of a generic term. It's really not used that much anymore, but it's good here because it captures kind of all these different um, stages of, of ESG. Other terms you might hear, we're going to look at in a minute, ethical investing, sustainable investing, impact investing. But where we'll start is in the 70s because many good things started in the 70s and the 80s were pretty good too. So we're going to uh, stop in both those decades. And in the 70s, um, obviously a big um, event there was the Vietnam War. So there were movements to divest from companies that had operations connected or were profiting from the war as a way to protest um, the US being a part of that war. Uh, so screening out investments that um, followed exclusionary screens would, would screen out companies that did business with, um, again, uh, in some way connected to the Vietnam War. Another um, kind of big example, again, more in the 80s, um, was divesting from businesses that did business in South Africa. And this was to protest apartheid. The also sin stocks and excluding the quotes sin stocks um, also became more prevalent at this time. So things like tobacco, alcohol, guns, gambling, uh, that you know you can point to a specific activity and, and again exclude all companies that have a connection to that type of activity. So this type of investing isn't based on financial metrics. It's more done to was done to make a statement, raise awareness. You know, divesting from companies that are connected to the Vietnam War didn't um, didn't have a financial return, but it was more to protest and make you know raise awareness of um, of that protest. So moving from there to kind of the opposite, which is positive screens, and this is somewhat um, just self-explanatory. You're looking for a best-in-class selection for a company. So in any given category or a sector. You're looking for what company might be doing uh, the best things for a certain standpoint. So example, environmental factors. This isn't that different from ES, or there's components of ESG in this, but this is kind of the, the early um, way of looking at it. Moving from there to kind of our next um, iteration or the, um, what was, yeah, I guess the next iteration is corporate social responsibility. This is a, 
a broad concept. It's um, kind of talking about companies operating in a way that improves the world. So that could be a number of ways, whether it's the society environment, um, it might be good governance, it might be employee relations, supply chain relations, customer relations, um, environmental management, uh, philanthropy, community involvement, all of those type of things um, connected to how a company actually operates and interacts in its industry and in the greater world and in the different places that it 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 operates both again maybe it's it's home office it's uh, manufacturing facilities but also it's supply chain which could reach um, around the entire world so the concept is you know that it operates in a way that helps society it also may help brand image which is good for the company um, and maybe morale in the workplace uh, probably you know in thinking about companies that do this I think we all can think of some that we that kind of the way they advertise or or position themselves in the market is with this, you know, we do good. Um, Patagonia is the one I think of as a, a good example here. Um, if you just Google and look at their website with corporate social responsibility, they have pages of kind of different things they've done over the years in response to um, concerns that they've learned about in their operations. So, you know, um, garment, Manufacturing is notorious for having um, maybe not the greatest conditions for workers. And so they've done different measures to try to improve that from third party auditors to really looking at where their workers are coming from. And you know maybe they're paying a fair wage in one country, but they've learned that in order to get workers into that country, those workers are in um paying a certain amount of debt. And so they're indebted for years once they're there, even though they're getting paid a fair wage. So looking from top to bottom at their whole supply chain and where um, materials come from. And, and again, you know, they explain all of this on their website of, of the different initiatives they've carried out to do that. And other, you know, that's just one example. Other companies carry, um, carry out similar activities. Um, there are scores for companies in this, corporate and social responsibility, and we'll talk about scoring um, or reporting in a minute. The next one we wanted to touch on is impact investing. So unlike corporate social responsibility, that's really just looking at doing good, impact investing is looking at both financial factors and the social impact factors. Uh, so, and there's, so there can be kind of which one you put first, um, may matter. So you can have the impact first and then the financial factors are kind of secondary or you could have um, the finance first and the social impact factors are secondary to that. So there can be a range of what the expected is return is with this type of investment from even below market to just a return of capital um, to market rate or above, uh, depending on what where the emphasis is. There's some concern that with impact investing, um, if the popularity grows, that there will be a heavier push toward just market rate returns instead of this concept of, of doing good. Um, I looked for a, an example of this, and so we just talked about Patagonia as maybe an example of a company that carries, that has a social responsibility uh, mindset. Um, in the materials that, um, Sorry, the light just went off. The on the next page, there's a footnote um, of 
a good article by Susan Carey. Um, it's a law review article. She's a professor at, um, I believe, Oregon Law School. Um, and she has good explanations of, so all of this, this um, kind of different areas of socially responsible investing, she has nice explanations of that. And then, um, actually, you can go back to the prior screen, Trisha. Um, and then she has a nice example of impact investing that is, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but it's eco-toilet or eco-toilet. Maybe it's eco-toilet, but it's spelled I-K-O. And the, it's a company that is, um, it's so again, the, the focus is on improving lives and the environment or both, um, but also providing good services. So this company um, produces essentially portable toilets in developing places. It solves a water scarcity issue. It solves sanitation issue. But their twist on it is that they make these um, uh, mobile facilities as kind of a community center. So they also provide um, electricity and, and infrastructure with the, the mobile units that allow small businesses to set up shop right there. And then it becomes a place where um, people come uh, for business and community and connection um, in addition to using toilets. Um, so it's kind of an interesting example and um, you can also look at their website. Now we'll move on to the next slide. And uh, with a term that we're more familiar with, and as Trisha said, it's in the news everywhere now, is ESG. Uh, and ESG integration, and the puzzle's a good picture here, and not just because Trisha and I like puzzles, but because with ESG integration, the environmental, social, and governance factors are all working together. And, and these factors are combined with the traditional financial metrics to measure companies. So let's uh, look at, and this is probably late 1990s, early 2000s when this first started, um, this term and, and these cons the, this shape of this concept started um, uh, becoming more prevalent. So with environmental factors, of course, they're listed here, you know, climate change, carbon emissions, pollution, energy efficiency, biodiversity, animal welfare, all of those things. Um, and Again, both um, at a company's headquarters, their manufacturing facilities, and their whole supply chain. Social is things like labor conditions, employee engagement, human rights, um, gender and diversity policies. Um, again, all, all wherever the company operates or wherever their operations affect others. And then governance is, you know, things that are connected to the to the board and the executives, but also how. Uh, transparent the company is with respect to that governance and, and the public. So transparency, anti-corruption policies, and whether they do lobbying or political um, type activities. So the ESG factors in the, the thinking is that if you can identify these um, or quantify these factors, then you can identify potential opportunities and risks for investment. So you might have companies that are um, not valued correctly in the market because these things haven't been factored in. Uh, but it ex and using ESG factors expands the information that's used to evaluate a company. So you're making better decisions about it. So that's kind of how you're um, uh, using 
those factors to better your return. Speaking of bettering your return, there are a number of studies looking at whether doing that, so including ESG factors, does uh, increase returns or whether it um, decreases them because if you're um, looking for companies that have good ESG scores, then you're necessarily taking some companies off the table and not investing in those or um, and, and whether limiting that field then limits your returns. And there are a lot of studies um, that come out both ways. Um, some of the critiques of studies that show uh, uh, that it's um, that it's a negative impact. Um, the critiques of those say, well, you didn't. Those studies didn't fully look at the right. Um, they weren't measuring the right thing. So maybe they're just measuring a kind of a general sense of social, um, socially responsible investing, but not really looking at the same ESG factors that we measure today or that are always measured. Um, and, and then that leads into, if we're looking at how we actually measure, there are a lot of different reporting standards. So there's hundreds, I think, uh, different companies that, have metrics and that report, and, and then there are um, some that are um, more commonly used than others. Um, but that um, kind of the the variety of reporting standards or the lack thereof is is an issue, and that leads into what Trish is going to talk about next. Right. The next thing I wanted to discuss was was the reporting standards surrounding ESG. And, um, you know, one of the, the problems, as Kelly mentioned, is that there isn't a standardized way of uh, looking at ESG in an investment or quantifying it. So, you know, what what even qualifies as an ESG factor? Um, is it, you know, poorly incentivized management? Is it unhealthy products? What, what factors are we actually evaluating the company on? And then, you know, if, if we're looking, may say, more specifically at, um, you know, greenhouse gas emissions, would we prioritize natural gas? Would we prioritize nuclear power, which is the cleanest, but has a, you know, catastrophic risk of, um, of failure. Um, so how do you quantify which one of those alternatives is preferable? And then what of what among these different factors are the most important? And what if they point in different directions? So a good example of this is that um, is when the S&P removed Tesla from its uh, uh, ESG uh, stock index, but left Exxon in, um, which, you know, on the, uh, we'll, we'll have a little quote later from Elon Musk, who, who saw this to be <laughs> um, unfair or un incorrect or um, mind boggling. But, um, you know, depending on how you're weighing those factors, um, you could end up with uh, a company that seems very ESG-ish, uh, ranking lower than a company that seems pretty anti-ESG. So one of the struggles has been the reporting standards. And um, uh, we're seeing in recently in the news some effort to standardize those reporting um, 
those reporting standards. So ESG seems to be everywhere lately. Um, the first area that we're seeing it is in the securities laws context. So what are companies required to report on um, under law? And then the second area we're seeing an explosion of ESG in the news is within retirement plan investing. Um, so kind of as Kelly was talking about at the you know very beginning of the program, what we're looking at today is ESG investing when you're investing someone else's money. Um, so a retirement plan is, although sort of unfamiliar to trust and estates lawyers, you know, I don't, I, I'm not an ERISA lawyer, but it has this analogy to a trust in that, you know, um, the retirement plan fiduciary is investing retirement plan funds or a pension fund on behalf of workers. Um, and so is going to owe them some obligations um, in the same way that a trustee who invests a trust on behalf of named beneficiaries owes them some obligations. So we can look at the retirement plan um, developments as something that might inform how we think about investing in a private trust. Um, and the thing that really struck me um, when I was sort of looking through the news of the net last couple of years on ESG is that um, this has become a very polarized topic um, and that there are um, really well entrenched sides to this story. Um, ESG investing has become something that's almost a cultural flashpoint. And for that reason alone, um, you know, I would I wouldn't be surprised to see lawsuits about ESG investing in a private trust context at some point. Um, so what are we seeing in the news um, in terms of the securities laws developments? Um, the first that I wanted to discuss was um, coming out of the European Union, um, which has a pretty different um, sort of default attitude about ESG than the United States does. Um, and one example of that is that um, the European Union has passed a climate law that aims to achieve climate neutrality by 2050. So they've agreed to uh, work toward that goal. Um, and so as you might expect, they have some um, you know, laws about uh, securities, laws about reporting that would be in furtherance of that goal. Um, so this, the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive was um, released by the, uh, or finalized by the EU in January, 2023. Um, and it's going to require companies to report on information surrounding climate change mitigation. It's going to require them to report on gender equality, working conditions, and human rights. And then from a governance standpoint, it's going to require companies to, to disclose their own internal risk management systems and controls over this type of reporting. Um, and this will be phased in over the next five years or so. Um, and will apply to 50,000 companies in the EU and maybe up to 10,000 elsewhere, including about 3,000 in the US. So this requirement will, um, you know, one would hope uh, create a sense of um, standardized information and quantification about um, ESG factors across companies. Um, and one interesting thing, again, this, this uh, really goes to the sort of default, default positioning of the EU as opposed to maybe what we see in the US is that companies are going to be required to report this information regardless of whether it's financially material to their bottom line. Um, so there's a real emphasis on this information is important to know, even separate from how it might affect investment performance. 
in the United States, there has been a development um, to increase reporting only surrounding environmental factors. Um, and this is the uh, so-called Gensler rule for the chair of the SEC, Gary Gensler, who um, proposed this rule in March of 2022. They call it the climate rule. <laughs> Gary Gensler does not call it the Gensler rule. Um, but the 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 idea is to expand upon the reporting that publicly traded companies already have to do about material risks to include climate change risks specifically. So the company uh, company would need to detail its preparedness for extreme weather events, and then also it have to disclose its own greenhouse gas emissions from its own operations the greenhouse gas emissions from the power it uses for its operations. And then in some cases, greenhouse gas emissions from inputs to its production and from downstream activities. So after its product is released to market. Um, so there, this is again, centered on the E, the environmental um, and specifically uh, you know, greenhouse gas emission um, disclosures. Um, it was proposed again in March of 2022, but um, and it was you know planned to be implemented in 2024 to 2027. But already, this timeline is being pushed back. Um, so uh, shifting from kind of the securities law types of developments in the ESG realm, um, let's let's turn back to retirement plans. Um, and again, like I'm not an ERISA lawyer. Why do I need to know this? Um, I thought it would be helpful just to have a little bit of history about ERISA. Um, it's the Employment Retirement Income Security Act, and it was enacted, as our, our earlier chart with the timeline showed, in 1974. And one of the um, kind of uh, reasons to, to enact it was that the Studebaker company went bankrupt in the 60s. So we had a little picture of the Studebaker from the Muppet movie. Um, that company went bankrupt in the 60s. And uh, all of the Studebaker employees who were counting on a pension from Studebaker through their retirement, their pension plan was wiped out and those, those employees were left high and dry. So the response was, you know, that's really not uh, something we want to happen in our society. We'll enact this federal law that's going to regulate um, the administration and the investment of any retirement plan assets that a private company is offering to its employees. Um, and it's enforced by the Department of Labor. It's based largely based upon common law trust principles. So when Congress was thinking, okay, what, how, how do we want this fiduciary, this ERISA fiduciary to act? They looked pretty quickly to the private trust context. So the, the way we would expect a private trust trustee to act as it um, invests property on behalf of beneficiaries, we wanna import those common law notions of fiduciary duty into this new federal statute. Um, so, you know, in, in some ways, you can think of ERISA as being descended from the common law of trusts, but again, it is its own federal statute. Um, and uh, in many states, uh, there are laws governing the um, administration and investment of public retirement plans for state employees that take the language from ERISA verbatim. So you'll see a similar landscape across the, the country, both on the federal level and the state level of the standards that apply to retirement plan fiduciaries as they invest money for employees. Um, so by the ERISA statute, 
Um, a fiduciary, risk of fiduciary, must act solely in the interest and with the exclusive purpose of benefiting the beneficiaries, the workers. And the U.S. Supreme Court has held that this means financially benefiting those beneficiaries. Um, so again, these standards aren't binding on a trustee of a private trust because we're not subject to ERISA or that Supreme Court case. But it is a, a an analogy that I think bears uh, looking at, especially when it's become quite heated. Um, so looking first at the federal level, what is, what is being um, talked about for an ERISA fiduciary? Um, so the Department of Labor, again, who, uh, who um, uh, administers ERISA and enforces ERISA, um, has, uh, has promulgated what they call an ESG rule. And there was a Trump ESG rule under Trump's Department of Labor. And then when Biden came into office, his Department of Labor promptly promulgated its own ESG rule. And there's you can read a lot of articles about how one ESG rule is really different from the other. But when you look at the two ESG rules that actually resulted um, from those, uh, those different departments of labor, they're pretty similar. Um, but nonetheless, what, what we're seeing now, what we have now in place is Biden's Department of Labor's ESG rule, which became effective in January, 2023. And ERISA fiduciary may rely on ESG factors if that fiduciary reasonably concludes the factors are related to risk and return. So a good example of this would be if we could all time travel back to the 70s or 80s, as we were talking about earlier, and, and if we could know that, say, an investor could know at that time that tobacco companies were going to be subject to a huge payout through litigation um, to their products users, that any tobacco stock would be significantly devalued with that knowledge. So if an ERISA fiduciary has this information that investing in this stock is going to be risky and it's going to decrease return, the ERISA fiduciary can use that information to invest accordingly. Um, that's the sort of uh, 20,000 foot overview of what the ERISA rule, how the ERISA rule might operate. But Promptly after the rule was announced or became effective, attorneys general from 25 states filed suit to prevent it from taking effect. And Congress was um, not happy either. We have here Senator Mike Braun and Congressman Andy Barr, who sponsored legislation, which passed both the House and the Senate to overrule Biden's ESG rule. And then Biden used the first veto of his presidency to uh, veto that that um, overruling statute to reinstate the ESG rule he had um, uh, promulgated, his Department of Labor had promulgated. Um, why would attorneys general and Congress not, um, not agree with this ERISA ES, or excuse me, the Department of Labor's ESG rule? Um, I think the thinking, the argument being made is that there's this direct line between considering an ESG factor and pursuing an ESG objective. So the argument would be if the ERISA fiduciary um, is supposed to um, invest these assets to maximize the financial benefit to the workers, if the ERISA fiduciary is also um, holding this goal of 
perhaps reducing greenhouse gas emissions, say. Um, and the workers don't agree with that goal. That's not their goal. What what business does the ERISA fiduciary have in pursuing that goal with the workers' money? Um, so I think that sort of encapsulates the 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 argument we're seeing, the entrenched positions about um, about ESG and its use. Um, in addition to federal retirement plan developments, there's been an explosion of state legislation on ESG. Um, I uh, would encourage you, if you're interested, to look at Ropes and Gray maintains a database of um, state laws regarding ESG that are, are pending or have been enacted. Um, so I, I pulled heavily from that in creating this slide. But again, in many states, um, there are laws governing the administration and investment of public pension plans that really in, that include ERISA's language verbatim. And now states are considering these new bills to talk about how to govern how our ESG factors should or could or can't or won't be used when making decisions about those retirement plan assets. So we've got 21 states that um, have bills pending to restrict the use of ESG factors when investing state retirement plan assets. That includes New Hampshire. Since we're in New England, I tried to highlight some, some local um, local hits. And then nine states have language that would promote or bills that would promote the integration of ESG factors in investing their public retirement plan assets. Nine states, including Massachusetts and some others in New England, have bills pending that would promote the divestment of certain industries. Um, so again, divestment like we were talking about in those earlier iterations of ESG. Um, and I'll, I'll get to Massachusetts in a moment, but nine states wanting to, to, to divest from certain industries and 11 states that target entities that boycott certain industries. Um, and so we're really getting into this tit for tat situation that we can kind of see if we look at New Hampshire and Massachusetts. So in Massachusetts, there are bills pending that will require state pension plans to divest from climate risk industries, nuclear weapons, ammunition, firearms, and companies that are headquartered in states that restrict public pension funds from using ESG investing. So if New Hampshire passes its law that says New Hampshire's public pension funds cannot use ESG in investing fund assets, then the Massachusetts pension fund administrator would, if, if this bill were passed in Massachusetts, would not be able to invest in any company headquartered in New Hampshire. Um, so again, it's, it's becoming uh, this tit for tat of entrenched positions. People feel very strong, strongly about whether these factors can, could, should, or should not be used in investing um, in retirement plans. But with that um, overview of um, ERISA and securities laws, we'll turn back to, to trusts and I'll hand it back over to Kelly. Thanks, Tricia. So as Tricia said, now let's turn back to something that's maybe more familiar to us um, as, as trust and estate lawyers and go back to the um, common law fiduciary duty. So in this slide, obviously, we have um, kind of the whole constellation of fiduciary duties. As we know, it's not one particular, um, one specific duty. There's a lot of different ones, and they kind of follow the life cycle of a trust. So from uh, first taking control of the property as a trustee and, and keeping that property separate, letting the beneficiaries know what property is there, um, 
and then getting into some of the duties we'll talk about next of making it productive, um, maintaining, uh, having that loyalty to the beneficiaries. Um, so again, from the whole lifespan of a trust, there's this whole set of duties that a, a trustee needs to always keep in mind. And and even for attorneys who aren't practicing as trustees, you know, you have clients that are, and you're setting up trusts, these also come into play. So looking at the next slide, we've highlighted the ones that we're going to talk about or focus on because they're related to investing and to the ESG investing concept. Um, the first that I'll talk about is the um, duty of prudence, um, or it's also known as the duty of care. And I've just kind of added on to this, the duty to make trust property productive, because um, that seemed obvious. And then Trisha will talk about the duty of loyalty and, and then this duty of impartiality between current beneficiaries and remainder beneficiaries. So moving on to this um, duty of prudence, we go back to our friend, the prudent investor rule. So again, looking at that timeline and kind of where we started and, and where we ended up on um, investing standards, the prudent investor rule is, is where we are now. It um, reflects the modern portfolio theory of um, diversification and managing risk across the whole portfolio. And it is encoded in statute in Massachusetts. And the, again, the site is here, we mentioned it earlier. And the, at, kind of at its simplest, the rule says that the trustee must invest the trust assets as a prudent investor would, given the purposes and terms of the trust. So let's look at that rule a little more closely. Prudent investor generally means um, using, using reasonable care, skill, and caution. Um, so we kind of have all of these uh, not qualitative terms that um, that inform us on this role as opposed to very specific, um, again, lists from our, our early days of statutory lists. Um, we've highlighted that no investing technique is per se prudent or imprudent under the rule. Again, you're looking at the context of the trust and the purposes of the trust. So, you know, what are those things to look at? Um, what are the distribution requirements? What are the interests of the beneficiaries? What was the purpose of the trust when it was established? Is that in the trust instrument or, um, or is the grantor's intent otherwise um, stated? Um, and then also what's happening in the economy. So looking at, um, again, some of the factors we talked about earlier of what role each investment plays in connection with the other um, assets um, owned by the trust. Uh, as Trisha's, um, I think, mentioned maybe explicitly or has alluded to that it, at this point, it's fairly widely accepted that ESG information could have a financial impact on return expectations of any given investment. Um, and so for that purpose, I mean, so because the rule tells us that we should be looking at the entire context of the trust and the environment that it's in, and because ESG information can have a uh, financial impact and return expectations for any given company, then a trustee maybe should be considering ESG information. Um, again, there's a difference between considering information that is ESG factors that are um, going to affect risk and return versus ESG factors that are purely for social reasons or um, just to, again, the 
if we're thinking of the, the icons that are on our development of socially responsible investing, if you're just looking at the earth and not the earth and the money, um, then maybe there's more limitation on what a trustee can do. As we've mentioned um, already, actually obtaining and quantifying that ESG information can be problematic. There's um, a number of different standards uh, and companies that issue standards and, and ratings and how you look at um, each of the factors um, can vary. Trisha mentioned uh, an example of, of Tesla and Exxon and that how in, in 2022, the S&P removed Tesla from its ESG in, index and left Exxon on. And, and, you know, what is behind that? You know, I think we, in just common, if we're, again, looking at ESG from kind of just a distant level, you would think Tesla is, is an ESG positive company and Exxon probably isn't because it's kind of from the original, um, you know, oil stocks and, and energy environment maybe not the best, especially for Alaskans. Uh, but if we look at the Tesla example, let's, you know, what what did happen here when it when it removed the index? So let's look at each one. So Tesla, typically its governance scores are low. And that's because uh, of the person who's quoted here. Um, they often limit the public disclosures from the company because of um, Musk's tweets and and just how volatile they can be. Uh, Musk also is close, or at least was close to um, several, had close ties to several of the directors on, on the board of directors. And so those factors and maybe others too, um, in many rating systems makes Tesla score lower. Um, for social factors, it also often scores low, uh, apparently because of treatment of workers and in, in, in their whole um, supply chain. For the environmental side, it actually can matter again what how that's like, what measures are being used to give the the environmental number. So if you're looking, for example, just at the output of Tesla and looking at well, they have low emission cars, and that's a good thing if we're worried about climate. Um, climate change and, and things that are good for the environment. Um, and so that's an output focused factor. But if you look at the input focused factors, um, it may have a low score emission from their um, factories and their other facilities, the raw materials that are needed to create batteries and, and all of the um, labor and environmental issues that are connected with, with those inputs. And so for um, rating systems that are focused on the inputs, um, Tesla could end up with actually a fairly low environmental score. And so when you add those together, that's how you could end up with um, Tesla being removed from an ESG index when Exxon is, is still there. Um, so the thing to remember with, just like our investing standards have evolved over time, it, they still will. And the imprudent investor rule takes that into account. So it's saying you need to look at what the environment is around you as, as a trustee and as you're investing, and um, that that is a flexible standard. It will continue to involve. And so it's it's following industry norms with a kind of a, a look to what's prudent at the time. And let's see. So with that, I think we'll move on to Trisha's um, duties. So I'm going to talk about the 
common law duty of loyalty and duty of impartiality. Um, so the, the common law duty of loyalty evolved to protect the beneficiaries from conflicts of interest in the trustee or self-dealing by the trustee. So the trustee must be loyal to the beneficiaries and not seek to advance the trustee's own interests or better the trustee, him or herself, um, but again, only advance the beneficiary's interests. So the, the, the rule is stated that the trustee must not use its role to achieve any other objective, even if the goal is laudable, like less pollution or more equality, and the beneficiaries are not harmed. Um, so if you if you think about that very strictly, that even when, as Kelly was saying, the trustee is thinking about both the earth and the money, just thinking about the earth is a violation of the duty of loyalty. Um, so that's that's um, that that should give trustees pause <laughs> to be uh, to be careful and tread carefully here. Um, uh, you know the and it, it goes back to the the. As I said, this has become so entrenched and polarized, but that that thinking of the beneficiary saying, hey, this isn't trustee, this isn't your money. And if you're trying to achieve a goal of, you know, less pollution, maybe I don't share that goal um, or maybe the donor to the trust didn't share that goal. Um, so this this duty uh, does, again, give pause to the use of ESG uh, factors when investing, although I, I do think that a strict use of um, ESG to decrease risk and elevate return, um, really focusing on that money and maybe happening to hit the earth <laughs> um, I, I, as you do it, um, would be acceptable under this duty. And then the, the second uh, common law duty of impartiality uh, means that the trustee must remain impartial between a trust's current beneficiaries and the remainder beneficiaries. So, um, you know, a classic case with you have an income beneficiary in front of you and uh, their issue are going to be the remainder beneficiaries. You can't, um, you know, prioritize this income beneficiary um, at the expense of the remainder beneficiaries. You need to be making the trust property grow for those remainder beneficiaries as well. Um, and this uh, duty gives us pause because you may find yourself as a trustee with all of the current beneficiaries in front of you who agree that ESG investing or pursuing a certain goal is uh, a desired use of the trust money, but you don't know what people who aren't born yet think. Um, and we don't know how attitudes about this type of investing are going to evolve. Certainly the last 24 months and, and reading the, the news in the last 24 months have shown me that, um, that there are very differing and strong opinions about this and that um, the, the landscape is changing quickly. Um, so this duty would also perhaps give us pause as a trustee when, when thinking about ESG investing within a trust. So with all that in mind, what, what should the trustee do? Um, and I think, you know, it bears emphasizing that, that we should always be looking at the trust document. And those of you who are um, still uh, drafting documents, I'm not anymore because I'm in-house, but if you're in private practice and drafting documents, do you have a donor who feels strongly about ESG investing? Do you have a family who really wants uh, to use their wealth to achieve certain um, social goals? Um, it it would 
I think, be a great idea to include that specifically in your document or by some sort of side um, memorandum in writing um, to make it clear that this is what was intended for these funds and that the trustee following that intent is one of the purposes of the trust. Um, use ESG factors, as I was saying just a moment ago, strictly to enhance risk-adjusted return, strictly to, to look at those tobacco companies and see a future liability um, that you know is going to affect investment performance. Really focus on the dollars, and um, if you happen to hit the earth uh, as well, then all, all the better, um, but focusing again on financial benefits to your uh, beneficiaries. But if a more aggressive ESG direction is requested, so a, a we are, you know, this family specifically wants to achieve some social purpose in addition to making money, or maybe even at the expense of making money, you can consider um, an NJSA. And uh, in 2021, New Hampshire enacted a statute that uh, specifically um, permits interested parties to a trust to agree by means of an NJSA that the trust will be invested in alignment with their social, environmental, or governance objectives or other values or beliefs, regardless of investment performance. So if you have a group of beneficiaries, if, you know, a family or um, a other, other set of beneficiaries that agrees that this is something they would like the trust to be um, doing, um, there is the ability to, to get this protection for the for everyone um, with via an NJSA to, to um, implement that more sort of um, aggressive ESG type investing. Um, and I'll say there are a number of other states that have similar statutes um, that, um, you know, I think Delaware has one and maybe Oregon. So, you know, we may be seeing more of these um, as, as time goes on. So that brings us to the end of our um, prepared slides. And again, the Q&A is open. If anybody wants to take a moment to type in a question, we'll, we will um, monitor that for the just the next few minutes as we wrap up. Doesn't look like there are any questions there yet. Um, kind of in, in summary, the again, what we're, one of the important um, takeaways here are that ESG and ESG is in the news and how do we, how do we incorporate that as trustees or attorneys who are drafting trusts or who have clients that have these interests? And how can that play out in administering in administering trusts or investments in those trusts? And um, that this whole issue is has evolved over time and it will continue to. And so it's important to know where it came from and kind of what the hot issues are now, how it's being interpreted now, and to have a sense for where it might go um, based on, on those factors. And that it always comes back to really what are remembering what the duties are as a trustee, um, and then the specific duties that, um, that even more so relate to investments and the things that you can look at with investments in terms of, um, uh, sorry, I just got distracted by a question. When in looking at, um, who the beneficiaries of the trust are. Oh, we have a question. So um, question is, what about charitable trusts? How does ESG investing work with charitable purposes? Um, and maybe that would be a separate webinar. Um, yes, <laughs> that could be. Um, 
I'll say something that maybe Trish, if you want to add, uh, just like Trisha was saying with, you know, New Hampshire, you could have actually maybe going back to the side, what is the purpose of the trust and what is the trust instrument saying? If you have a charitable trust, um, looking at, again, what the purposes are, what mission is written into, I mean, we have a lot of different types of charitable trusts. Some really are just saying distribute to any charities and others have actual kind of mission uh, written into the trust document. If it does address, you know, a charitable mission that supports less pollution, then you probably have more leeway as trustee to um, invest in assets that that have that same outcome. Um, it, you're still held to the the um, investing standard um, that we talked about of um, the um, the modern. Well, now I'm I'm losing it. Tristan, help me out. You're you're still you're still required to make money. You're still you know held to that that prudent prudent investor standard and um, you know to to diversify across uh, asset classes. But as Kelly said, you know a charitable trust sort of sort of has within it the ability to pursue a charitable goal. I mean, that's the, the point. Um, so there is more leeway to, um, you know, seek a charitable sort of ancillary benefit to making money through your investments. I think a good, um, you know, I, I we cited it, the article, and I should have actually given it lip service, but um, a great article about um, this type of investing is the, the Sitkoff article. Um, Professor Sitkoff at Harvard wrote an article about ESG investing in 2020. And um, he makes the analogy of, you know, if, if, if I as a trustee have the authority to distribute property to A, B, and C, um, I um, charity isn't listed there, right? If I can't make a, if I'm only allowed to distribute to A, B, and C, I'm prohibited from distributing, writing a check to, um, you know, MGH. Um, I only can do A, B, and C. But if you've got a charitable trust that's benefiting MGH, you know, you can also uh, invest in a way that would achieve one of MGH's um, mission-related goals. Thanks. So thanks for the question. And it um, doesn't look like we have any more at the moment. So again, thank you for um, tuning in with us or tuning in. That's uh, thank you for joining us today or listening to this. Um, if you have any additional questions, feel free to contact Trisha or I directly. Our contact information is on the um, both, both the first slide and this and the last one. Um, we're always happy to to talk and to, to answer questions. And I'll also just point out that next week is the final um, program for the trust and estate section um, at the BBA, and it's the end of year wrap up. So look for the information on that if if um, you're interested in attending. <laughs>